David, it's time to experience New Mexico. And I say this as somebody who just got off the plane from Albuquerque after an incredibly fun long weekend. New Mexico is a second home to me. I hung out in Albuquerque this weekend. I went up to Sandia Crest. I went up to Santa Fe and had some delicious brunch. You can go to New Mexico, too, and soak up the unique beauty and rich cultural diversity with influence from Native tribes, the Wild West, and even Georgia O'Keeffe. You can marvel at New Mexico's breathtaking landscapes from ski areas to white sands and natural hot springs. Learn more and plan your next trip at NewMexico.org slash PressBox. New Mexico True. David, last week, Kentucky Senator Rand Paul proposed that administration officials take a polygraph (laughs) to prove they were loyal to Donald Trump. And Mike Pence said, in fact, he would take a polygraph. Oh, my gosh. I've really just got a general question here. Okay, go. (laughs) How do you think the administration of a polygraph test to Trump administration officials would go? Just just paint me a picture. Do some scene Um, writing. Man, um, okay, I'm gonna not take this too seriously. I, first of all, how do you set the baseline in these? Wouldn't the, wait, aren't you already in the grounds of self-incrimination? I guess you can lie. <laughs> you, you hook up Pence, and you're just like, is your wife's name Karen? Every it's, uh, from that point on, it's pure comedy, right? Is it true that you refuse to meet with female staffers? Ooh, that's uh, good. Like, yeah. I mean, like what? Like what are the? I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure that. Uh, my guess is that Mike Pence is polygraph test would be a pretty would be a pretty steady line because he's you know uh a robot it seems but um yeah but yeah i, I should don't, we, I don't should I, we, by the way say also that polygraph tests are not like they are in like <laughs> Hanna barbera cartoons where they like explode when the subject lies i'm pretty sure on face the nation when pence was asked they asked if he would take a lie detector test which is <laughs> and it's which immediately made me flash back to some like childhood cartoons for sure i mean polygraph tests are so problematic in so many ways I, I just love that they just asked like like that the whoever was interviewing him just asked him with like full credulity like would you take a lie detector test like I, like what how are we really at a point and he said yes how are we at a point where where I am the vice president the duly elected vice president of the United States you can take my word for this how is that not good enough I guess that just says all you need to know about the the space we're occupying right now I'm picturing Pence all hooked up to the machine like they used to do on the Howard Stern show. And that kind of guy who was there, polygraph guy going, uh, he was Howard, he was being deceptive. Yeah. <laughs> who was that? Who was that guy? I love that guy. Is he still around? <laughs> We're going to look up his name. We, we haven't done a lot of research. We're going to look, look up his name. We are the most truthful media podcast in the world. This is the Press Box, a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. The Press Box is the lodestar of media podcasts. We are Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker of The Ringer. That was too easy, wasn't it? Thank you, uh, friends, for suffering through our abbreviated emergency pod last week. David, I sloppily tweeted that given all the media news, the press box was going to go into emergency mode for the foreseeable future, which a lot of our very nice listeners thought meant that the press box had been canceled. <laughs> it, was, it was just an emergency podcast. No, that is not true. We are weekly. And by the way, just a note to all uh, listeners out there. In, in Ringerland, emergency is like the highest designation of podcasts. That's like yeah. the operating Thetan level. We have, If we're doing an emergency podcast, that means we've made it, baby. We're here to stay. Anyway, on this not emergency podcast, we've got three topics. First, David, we'll talk about Bob Woodward's new book, Fear, because that is all anybody is talking about. And the Woodward editorial process that seems to ensnare so many high-ranking officials. Second, we'll talk about the anonymous op-ed column that dropped like a bomb on Washington, D.C. last Wednesday and has also infuriated the Trump administration. And finally, the ouster of CBS's Les Moonves and the reporting from Ronan Farrow of The New Yorker that led to it. Plus, as always, our overworked Twitter joke of the week. But should we start with Woodward? And let's start with a surreal telephone call in August that President Trump made to Woodward to talk about his new book. Hello, Bob. President Trump, how are you? How are you? How are you doing? Okay? Real well. I'm turning Good. on my tape recorder oh, that's with okay. your permission. That's okay. I I'm don't mind I'm sorry that. we missed the opportunity to talk for the book. Well, I just spoke with Kellyanne, and she asked me if I, uh, if I got a call. I never got a call. I never got a message. Who did you, who did you ask about speaking to me? Well, about six people. Uh, you know, well, they don't tell me. All right, David, the day that that book was going to be released is finally here. And by the way, 
true story. I went to my an Albuquerque, New Mexico, Barnes and Noble this morning to pick up a copy for me and for my mom. And they said that 170 copies had been placed on hold Mm -hmm. in Albuquerque. (laughs) That that liberal bastion. This is not Kramer books or politics and prose. Albuquerque, New Mexico, 170 books. Uh, Cyber Deschusers already printed more than a million copies. They've done six reprintings. This is before the book was released. Uh, We'll go through some of the um, (laughs) early revelations and the... uh, and the uh, denials and uh, from administration officials, the very, uh, shall we say, carefully worded denials. But what did you make of Woodward coming back? And this felt like you know, we've had nothing but great political muckraking, right, for the last mm-hmm. couple of years, the first couple of years of the Trump administration. And this felt like, <laughs> I'm back, baby. I'm back from the 70s. You know, like I'm, I'm going to put, this is, it, muckraking goes up a level when Bob Woodward is involved. And, and it just felt like, you know, the way other reporters were kind of reacting to him, the way, the strange way you had former administration officials from Obama and Bush saying, oh, look, if Woodward says it, it's true. He's scrupulously fair. What did yeah. you make of the whole return? I mean, the the reputation that he has as a writer is is worth commenting on. I mean, I remember last week we were talking a little bit about, when we were talking about Bannon, um, there was the implication that, you know, that, that, Say what you will about Bannon's appearance on, on the, at the New Yorker Festival, but what? But but maybe that was the Edward R. Murrow moment uh, for you know if 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 you look at Bannon as a as a McCarthy figure, um, certainly Woodward is appearing. I mean, is is kind of being put over or putting himself over as the sort of Edward R. Murrow of this moment, right? I mean, he is he is the muckraker above reproach, as you said. He's the um, he you know if if there's going to be a a journalists that can sort of just break through um you know break through the 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 chaos and noise this is this is the guy right uh so so and and I've been impressed with his I mean not impressed I mean it's 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 not just you know he's out there doing media he's out there um he's making himself into a figure which is not unusual for him doing you know doing that sort of press or for anybody writing this sort of book but he's definitely um He's not shying away from this moment. And I love that. I'm just so fascinated by the figure he makes himself into because it's 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 Woodward as he ever was, which is Mr. Just the Facts. Right. It's never, you know, this is, you know, this I'm going to I, I you know, Trump is a maniac and he must be stopped. You know, we, we're we're so used to kind of a, you know, dialogue of Chris Hayes versus Sean Hannity versus Rachel Maddow, whatever. And then you get this guy like I'm just a reporter, you know. These are just, these are these are where the facts led me, right? And he'll make these he'll make these kind of assumptions. He said that on on CBS Sunday morning, people better wake up to what's going on, right? <laughs> what kind of mm-hmm. leaving what, what we're waking up to and the implications of you know to to his reporting. But I I, I just love the figure that he cuts. It's very it's very um, you know again on purpose, and he he styles himself as this for sure. It's very old school. It's very gumshoe. It's it's very much the straight out of all the president's men Woodward that we've always known. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he's he's been you know very serious, uh, but also and, and listen, his he's written all of his books have a hook, right? I mean, there's no there's no there's no Woodward presidency book that hasn't come with some breaking news with some significant insight into the 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 current administration. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, for him to go out there and say he's never seen anything like the Trump administration, the extent to which he, you know, the extent that he's that he's, um, you know, hammering on it, uh, it, it's 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 this is different. Yeah, it's funny. His um, former reporting partner Carl Bernstein on CNN always just, I think, like every ten minutes declares that whatever is happening in Trump world is worse than Watergate, mm-hmm. quote unquote. <laughs> it's just like one of those one of those things where you just get you just kind of say that every once in a while. It's like, oh my Carl Burn and it's always gets like secondary <laughs> news items. Oh, Carl Bernstein has said this is worse than Watergate. It's time to it's time to really pay it's like I just kind of think he says that a lot. He uh, does. Some of the some of the some of the we're now this is this is Tuesday when we're talking and we're starting to get the first wave of serious denials. There was that amazing thing last week where all the people were coming forward to say they didn't write the uh, anonymous op-ed, which we're about to talk about. 
And oh today was kind of the day that you come forward and say that you didn't leak to Woodward, but you don't exactly say that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rob Porter, who was a staff secretary and one of the guys uh, in the opening chapter of this book who is – <laughs> let us say, pulling things off the president's desk and kind of rerouting things they don't want Trump to do into this bureaucratic morass. He comes out and says, uh, calls the Woodward book a, quote, selective and often misleading portrait and says it would be wrong to say documents were stolen, quote unquote, from Trump's desk, but does not deny any specific incidents. Uh, this is Peter Baker of The New York Times' tweet. During Watergate, Woodward got a lot of what were called non-denial denials. And Gary Cohn uh, who is also part of the take stuff off Trump's desk caper <laughs> is is uh, issued an even more nebulous denial, which does not prove anything at all. Um, but it's just so funny because they, I guess and, and this kind of ethical question came out today of let's say let's just imagine that Porter and Cohn completely cooperated with Woodward and everything Woodward wrote in the book is true that they did. But then yeah. they come out and put on this show of denying it or saying or, or kind of sort of denying it. Does Woodward have some impetus to come forward and say, no, no, actually, they told me all that stuff? Or does the grant of anonymity, as he calls it, deep background, cover them no matter what they say to the press? I mean, I'm, I'm sure you can make the ethical case that that outing them is permissible, but I'm not sure that that you know, a philosophical argument would really hold any hold any water right now. You know, I mean, it would still it, it would still open up that open up the sort of rear flank to attack. And I don't and that's the last thing Woodward needs right now when he's making a pretty compelling case on his own. Right. I mean, you don't need you don't need, you know, 500 Breitbart or Daily Caller articles about how Burn or Woodward has proven himself to be dishonest or dishonorable. You know, I mean, that's that, that it seems sort of unnecessary. But it seems a little bit beside the point, especially considering and again, all this ties in with the op-eds that, we're, that we'll talk about separately, um, but also some together, is that I don't think there's anyone in the world that expects the the author of the op-ed or the people who are, uh, you know, who, who have opened up to Bob Woodward to be honest about that after the fact. I think that's one of the most permissible lies, uh, you know, possible. Yeah, and I guess your move if you're a politician is just you don't answer the 50,000 press requests you're getting to, <laughs> to want to know if you cooperate with Woodward. And let's just say also the criticism of the Woodward method is that you pick people as heroes of your book who almost certainly cooperated or, you know, let us say, you know, allowed emissary, their emissaries to cooperate with you. Right. Mm-hmm. They become the kind of putative hero of the book. This happened with some of the with Colin, some Colin Powell and some of his staff uh, during the Bush war books of which he wrote three, I believe. That yeah. they became these kind of noble, you know, ideological guys who couldn't believe what was happening around them, right? And this is the same thing with the Trump guys. The criticism here is these Trump people who participated in this, who knew exactly who Donald Trump was when they took the job, are now trying to say, look, look what I've done, right? I stopped him. Uh, the Woodward book is showing that, that we civil servants are the real heroes here. Yeah, I mean, but then again, but as but as you just pointed out, no one's really taking credit for it. I'm not sure. I, I think for it to, to the same in the same way that no one's going to be upset at someone for denying they did something that they may have done just to you know temporarily uh, save face or or you know avert repercussion. I don't think you get credit down the road. I mean, I, I even 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 if there were a story about pulling a document off Trump's desk that that literally averted a disaster of some sort. Um, a, a large scale disaster. Uh, I, I have a hard time imagining any of these, I, any of the people in this book, to as future deep throats, whether or not they're you know lightly painted as heroes in Woodward's retelling. Yeah, but I, you know what? I think for for Washington people know because they have a complicated idea of who Gary Cohn is. But for mm-hmm. the one million people who are going to read this book, um. What do they know about Gary Cohn other than these anecdotes in this book, right? I mean, so I, there's a there's a different audience here. There's the audience that reads the New York Times and reads Politico and all that stuff, and then there's this audience of people who are vaguely familiar with these names from Fox News or CNN or whatever, who are like, "Oh, sure. Gary Cohn, you know, he was he was the one." And and look, he he'll become a villain <laughs> to forty odd percent of that audience, but right. to the other sixty percent, he's going to become this kind of strange, you know, ideological 
heroic figure. A couple other things. Well, we did, and just a just a butt in. I I mean, forty percent is. I mean, he'll, he'll become a villain to forty percent of of the country theoretically, but not probably not forty percent of the people who are purchasing this book. I think that that probably skews in another in 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 a in a relatively uh, more open minded slash uh, liberal perspective. Yeah, no, that's definitely true. The um, a couple of notes about the Woodward method and 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 the related question of why do all these people talk to Bob Woodward for every one of these books. Uh, there was a tweet from Josh Dossie of the Washington Post who said, of the 13 former, current and former White House officials I spoke to today, this is last week, seven said they spoke to Bob Woodward for his book. <laughs> so it's like, you know, th- those are the seven that admitted it, right, off yeah. the record. Um, you know, and part of it is jockeying to, again, I think, you know, some of it is like, I want to be known. I think the, the most extreme example of this is I want to be known. The Trump administration could be known as a, epic disaster in American politics. And I want to be known as one of the one or two people who was trying to do something, right? The John, the the kind of John Dean late, you know, I have, a, I have a crisis of conscience figure, right? And I turned on my employers. But the other is just the usual Washington thing, right? I want to make myself, I want to make my role known. I want to be a part of the story. I want to scramble for credit. The kind of stuff that infuses all, basically every article you ever read. And just with Woodward, it's like that time's, 10,000. Yeah. And there've been some people talking about Woodward's actual, I mean, his, 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 uh, sort of style of, of, uh, reporting or interrogation or uh, I'm sure I'm failing at the right word here, but he would, that he'll interview people over and over again, you know, he'll, he'll interview you and then, and then come back when he has more information. And I th- well, he has a, you know, a famous phrase about this, but basically it's like, the more, you know, the more they'll tell you. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you know, it's not like, I mean, I'm sure there. I'm sure for some, there's this perception that he's, you know, getting phone numbers off of, you know, from people's friends and calling them late at night and trying to get this inside information. I mean, no, what we've what we've discussed this a million times on this podcast, and it's, you know, it's it's out there. I mean, uh, administration officials are very available to to journalists who are covering the Trump White House. You know, I mean, on the record or off, um, and particularly off, maybe in this White House, this is this has been a you know this is a this is a this is a leaky administration, and and the idea that that you know there's anything abnormal about having a conversation with Bob Woodward. I mean, especially in the, in you know the Trump era, it, it, it's he just go he just he just keeps kind of hammering away until he feels like he gets the truth. Do you like how Crazy Town has? I don't know if it's entered the lingo or re-entered the lingo. That's <laughs> a. <laughs> As a result of the one quote of this book, which is it's pointless to try to convince him of anything. He's gone off the rails. We're in crazy town. Do you, do yeah. you think, would you rather visit crazy town or flavor town? <laughs> do you have a, do you have a preference? Uh, I'm a big flavor town proponent. So that one's easy for me, but you know, crazy town is, is I think we all, we've all been to crazy town every now and then. Um, the, 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 the litany of euphemisms, uh, for the degree of kind of, um, just nuttiness in the in the Trump White House is has been sort of amazing too. Yeah, right? I mean, it, you know, we get these every once in a while. There'll be a there'll be like a real blunt uh, quote from somebody. You know, he's a fucking idiot or someone that get that gets leaked out. And of course, there's denials again, forgivable denials. Um, I would I would guess, but but uh, but yeah, I mean, it's it's amazing. Like it's a, it's kind of impressive how many different ways people have of just saying like you know this is a fucking disaster. My favorite is always in in New York Times East is the word extraordinary. <laughs> That's what they used to mean, like, just like just this shit is off the rails. You know, is is extraordinary. Like, and there was a piece they did about the anonymous op-ed, which we'll talk about in a second. But it's like the uh, a line of people pleaded not guilty on Thursday to writing an extraordinary anonymous essay, and then later yeah. in the same piece, it said that helped incite an extraordinary parade of top officials marching into news media microphones to disavow the piece. <laughs> So it's like a double extraordinary. Times have been using extraordinary pretty pretty frequently since the beginning of Trump, but this is a double extraordinary day means something really amazing happened. We're actually approaching. I'm sure there's some like you know onion zone, some whatever the onion version of the Tyson zone is, but we're actually approaching the great on, the onion Ardum century headline of "Holy shit, man walks on fucking moon." I feel like that could like be every Trump headline. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna put aside the extraordinaries at some point and just get to the point. Couple other funny notes uh, from Politico, Politico's excellent media newsletter. I learned that veteran liberal host and commentator Bill Press also has a new book out today. <laughs> it's called <laughs> "Trump Must Go." 
<laughs> so, uh, and I don't know if this helps Bill Press. Does, are people going to Barnes and Noble or are seeing like people also bought Bill Press's Trump must go? But it, <laughs> quite a thing to be buried under the Woodward avalanche. Um, there was, of course, an old Trump tweet praising Woodward, which is only the Obama White House can get away with attacking Bob Woodward. <laughs> Not anymore. Um, also, in a you put vulture in my Politico moment, our pal Chris <laughs> Sullentrop did oh, yeah. the Bob Woodward books ranked. Yes. Which was kind of amazing. I had, I, I, you know, the ones that came out in our adult lifetime, I sort of vaguely remembered a couple of them I had to read. Uh, I had, Chris found out that he, Woodward had written a Dan Quayle book, which sounded like a weird sort of clip job that Woodward was even too embarrassed to put on his website, which <laughs> studiously listed all his other books. Oh, wow. And then this one for you, because you're so, you are a book publishing correspondent here on the press box. Vanity <laughs> Fair's Joe Pompeo reports about <laughs> all the other Trump books we're still going to get at this point. Oh, M- yeah. Michael Schmidt, who's breaking scoop after scoop at the Times, is writing a book about Robert Mueller. Um, James Stewart, who's a fine Times columnist who's read The New Yorker, is writing a book on, about, quote, the relationship between the White House, the FBI, and the Justice Department. There's a Matt Drudge book coming out about Matt Drudge. Wow. And I'm probably forgetting some. And, yeah, and, I mean, the, and, and I'm sure Judge Judge Janine has you know four more coming out next <laughs> Judge, year. Judge, <laughs> um, I think that in another administration, you would, I mean, you would see though, I mean, th- those books would probably not even merit mention. I mean, of course, their their authors would get on the Sunday shows for one week or the you know may, whatever. But and and I mean, if it, it I, there would always be this vibe in publishing where it's like, well, we know Woodward's coming out, so we just got to get out of the way, you know, or like they're like, what's you know, you you can or or you know, publish conservatively. Is it so like you a don't movie? Lose a lot of money. Is it like when you know Star Wars is coming out, you move your movie to next month? There's different ways. I mean, there's different thought. There's <laughs> there's different theories about it. I mean, there's certainly like if you think you can, if you come out at exactly the same time, you get the you get the double review for sometimes with a big book. You know, yours is the lesser book, but it gets there in the New York Times. But for the most part, a book like this, you would clear out, and that's why you would say like the Michael Wolf book. And I know nothing about how that was purchased, but like you know, you might see a book like that and just be in another administration and say, okay, if you can, if we can publish this at this very moment, then okay, because it'll be far enough away from the other stuff, you know. Um, but the prop with the Trump administration, you got to imagine that like all these books are going to have something, you know, I mean, they're all going to have, they're all going to have, they're all going to carry a couple days or a week of the news cycle because it just seems like, like crazy town is leaking out left and right. You know I mean? You don't have to be Bob Woodward to get a major scoop. Although Woodward's done a pretty good job of, uh, telling the comprehensive story. It sounds like if there's a Woodward bill press double review. I, I just, somebody, p- please email it to me. Just find my email address and send it to me. All right, David, now it's time for the overworked Twitter joke of the week, where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of Twitter made it at exactly the same time. In NFL news, David, it was week one of the NFL, and the Cleveland Browns kicked off the season by not losing. They yeah. tied the Pittsburgh Steelers 28-28 in overtime in a game that featured Josh Gordon pulling down an amazing ball in the end zone, and the Browns kicker, of course, missing a kick in OT that, that would have won the game. Uh, it was an overworked Twitter joke to write, the Browns are going 0-0-16, and, and we are all witnesses. That was someone. one thing someone added. Thanks to David Trinis, Trinis for that one. Sorry, David, uh, about your pronunciation of your name. In fight of their political lives news, and by the way, David, it is a great time of year for a newspaper to use the phrase, so-and-so politician is in the fight of their political lives. This is, <laughs> right. this is the time if you're on the ropes. I'm sure you've been following the Texas Senate race. In our home state featuring Ted Cruz versus Beto O'Rourke, there was a tweet from Raw Story over the week, uh, over last week, that read like this. Ted Cruz warns that Beto O'Rourke will bring, quote, tofu, silicone, and dyed hair, end quote, to Texas. Tofu, silicone, and dyed hair. (laughs) It was an overworked Twitter joke to say, breaking Ted Cruz has never been to Dallas. That was a... (laughs) A good one. And by the way, I love the the you and I love Texas. I, the lowest form of Texanness is is just saying like stuff from the coasts is coming to Texas. Yes, I love that. Even my favorite radio station, in Dallas, is we don't have any any of those hosts from the coast giving hot opinions. You know, like oh yeah, those people from the <laughs> just imagine those people from the coast. Can you imagine that as a real the, the worst a real part is Texan? that you know the worst part is that you know you workshopped that like that was a very like that's the it like, works. It, that's, 
Yeah, that it, that line in particular is terrible. That's it's just it's weird. absolutely terrible, but it it has this weird appeal, and that and he is the the campaign he's running is no tofu. Like the other guy will bring tofu, I will bring uh, you know uh, lower taxes. Like that that is that is the trade off here. <laughs> in other bitter political news, Thursday finally is primary day in New York State, and with apologies to Zephyr Teachout, the main event David is Andrew Cuomo versus Cynthia Nixon. Oh, yeah. For the gubernatorial nomination, there was a tweet from Gothamist, a very notorious tweet, Monday that read, see it, Cynthia Nixon orders cinnamon raisin bagel with dot, 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 locks and capers. This was, this was seen, this was, <laughs> this is like the annual, like, someone ate pizza wrong, you know, political hit. Um, Cynthia, Cynthia Nixon ordering a cinnamon raisin bagel with locks and capers. Uh, it was an overworked Twitter joke, and boy was it. I mean, there were a bunch to say, quote, this is a devastatingly effective schmear campaign. Thanks to, yeah. yeah, I know, but it was everywhere. It was everywhere. Thanks to Matthew. I had a, I had a bagel this morning for breakfast. I think my first since I came back. At least I may, I think I had one the first day I came back. But it's strictly because of this conversation. This conversation made me hungry for a bagel. <laughs> Thanks to Matthew Zeitlin for that. All right. Topic number two, David. In other Trump administration news. Here is Kenneth Vogel, reporter of the New York Times, tweet sharing a voicemail he got from a reader. Oh, hi, Ken. I don't even know you. I'm calling from California. This is a number that uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders posted. And I just want to thank you a million times over. It is the most helpful I hopeful I have felt about our government in a long, long time uh, for publishing that article yesterday. Uh, good work. I'm so grateful for it. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Keep up the good work, whatever support we can give you. Thank you. Uh, I know I was supposed to call this to complain, but this isn't a complaint. This is of appreciation. Anyway, okay, maybe it doesn't matter, but what the heck. I felt compelled to do this. Bye-bye. That is in response to the New York Times, of course, publishing an op-ed last Wednesday called I Am Part of the Resistance Inside the Trump Administration. And Sarah Huckabee Sanders, part of the administration's response was encouraging people to call the New York Times. It just turns out that some people called with, you know, kind of the nasty uh, message on the phone. And some people called, as in Vogel's case, praising the New York Times, say, thank you for publishing this. Please publish more things about Trump. We seem to have settled in this weird stasis, uh, at least in liberal Twitter land, about the anonymous op-ed, David, which is this person This senior administration official is trying to, as we said a moment ago, get on the right side of history, right? You know, they are, they are, they're happy with a lot of the stuff Trump has done. They are, by writing this, they are trying to plant their flag as the guy with a conscience or gal with a conscience inside the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. And isn't that cheap? But dot, 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 liberal Twitter continues. Isn't it amazing that this happened? (laughs) Because this is the greatest story ever. What do you what do you make of the op-ed? Wow, um, I you know it's funny. I mean, this combined with the Woodward thing, and these two things are inextricable on the podcast, obviously. But just in general, it, it just seems like the revelations. I mean, it, we've talked on over and over again during during the Trump era that you know even the wildest news has a very very short life you know lifespan because there's just something else wild around the corner to 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 knock it down a peg i sort of feel like as i mean in some ways this is the inverse of that that we that we finally feel like we're settling into a level of agreement uh, of like of understanding of how dysfunctional of how like all of the, that all of the sort of wildest uh um imaginations of what the what inside the Trump White House might be like are actually true and it's in some ways it's alarming and in some ways it's just sort of calming isn't the right word but it gives you some assurance that like you know that you're not dwelling purely in the land of conspiracy theory so it's essentially uh, saying that the people who publish this op-ed and the people who are glorying in it are saying Look, look, the Trump administration is off the rails, which we already knew. And the people yeah. on the Trump side of it saying, look, these people are trying to sabotage the administration. It's off and the th- rails because of these people. This is a total sidebar. But I mean, I wonder if there's I mean, a lot of a lot of the the hunger for the Mueller investigation. And, and, and given it's an incredibly serious investigation, especially if it bears any fruit. Um, 
But like, uh, you know, a lot of the hunger for, for, for that and for the, the question of whether or not there was some outside influence on the election is, is goes back to this sort of uh, just widespread disbelief. I can't believe some, I can't believe that someone this dysfunctional was elected president. There must be a deeper reason. I wonder if like at some point it will become enough that there's, there probably was not a direct correlation. You know, if, if indeed there was not a direct correlation between Trump and Vladimir Putin, that just this is an incredibly dysfunctional administration. Like if, if the premise is correct, it, it, is it can is is everyone going to be okay to let the let the Russia half go? Um, but I I don't I, the, the, all that is a sidebar to this op ed, which was really really I mean it it was very significant and very spectacular and um, just the language. I mean it it reads like a Woodward, uh, you know, joint. The dilemma. The anonymous author writes is that many of the senior officials in his own administration are working diligently from within to frustrate parts of his agenda and his worst inclinations. I would know I am one of them. Yeah. Woo. So yeah. a little bit of how well, this the- came together, by the way, the Times was the Times op-ed page, which does not, uh, in cases like this, talk to the news pages, right? The news, the pe- the reporters who covered the Trump White House would love to know who this guy is or gal is if they don't already mm-hmm. know. Uh, this is a story they would love to get. Uh, and the people at the paper who know won't tell them. Uh, they were contacted. Um, James Dow, who's the Times' op editor, told Brian Stelter through an intermediary. Uh, they talked to the person, uh, obviously did some some background verification to make sure they weren't be ta- being taken for a ride. There's a, he said there was a tiny number of people at the <laughs> Times who know the author's identity they didn't do anything to disguise the prose um in in you know to try to take out any words or change the writing style so the person wouldn't be known this led to lodestar gate <laughs> which is <which laughs> just the word lodestar was in the piece and then there was some sleuthing saying oh well you know it's like mike pence has used this in a speech a couple times anyway uh that was that was guessing game number one the, the guessing game is phenomenal right I mean, you know, people have referenced now both Deep Throat and Primary Colors as our two <laughs> Washington guessing games. <laughs> <laughs> and as the Times reported, like everyone is, you know, coming to a microphone saying, I did not write the op-ed. I would yes. like to. And I like the people who were just ridiculous. Like Steve Mnuchin, you know, did not write. Yeah, OK, we, we almost didn't need clarification on that. One. <laughs> you know, he He's fine. Right. He's he's not upset. Um, also, we got a great Rachel Maddow tweet. You and I have been um, or Rachel Maddow quote, you and I have been chronicling all the times when people say this is the end of the Trump administration or this is the turning point. Rachel Maddow right. said, this feels like the end of something and I don't know what happens next. So once again, the flag has been planted that this is <laughs> something is going to change after this anonymous op-ed. <sighs> yeah. The um, the literary guessing game is fascinating, is it not? Yeah, I mean, like the I, language. Thankfully, uh, I have some semblance of a long-term memory. And I, I think previously on this podcast, when the, when the story, when the Axios story came out, I remember discussing, this is in on May 13th. I remember discussing the Mike Allen quote, what uh, uh, Mike Allen um, story uh, why, about why white house leakers leak where, where someone in the Trump administration says to cover my tracks. I usually pay attention to other staffers, idioms and use that in my background quotes to throw the scent off me. <laughs> and I, I was, I was like, I came off the top rope like Macho Man Randy Savage into Ringer Slack when everybody was like flipping out about this op-ed and the Lodestar tweets started circulating. Um, it, you know, Lodestar is a perfect way to throw your to 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 you know throw the scent off. Um, and you know, uh, I, I find it really hard to believe that. I mean, I found it hard to believe anyway that Mike Pence would be the person writing this. Um, you know, that, that Mike Pence would be the the, the culprit here, but. It is really, I mean, the fact that everybody was just going there. Um, I mean, I guess that's just where we are in, in the Twitter age and in 2018 in general. You know, you got you got to do the sleuthing because, uh, you know, that's that's just how we function. Yeah. And, and people want to know. Right. I mean, it's a legitimate it's a legitimate uh, news activity. Like some, some, somebody says they're sabotaging the Trump administration. That's that's kind of a big deal. And wrote about it in The New York Times. That seems like a sure. big deal. By the way, yeah, it you, does. Have you I mean, ever used, put, have you used the word lodestar before in your prose? I, I mean, come on. I might I might have written it in a short story when I was like twenty one, but I, I can't imagine that I've used it since. All right, I've used it in a ringer story in the last two months. So, uh, <laughs> just confession time. Well done. I am well anonymous. 
Um, yeah. I wish I were anonymous now. Um, but uh, yeah, it's kind of a, it's kind of a handy word, you know. It's kind of it, it takes us back to you when you and I were in SAT class in high school, you know. All right, David, we're gonna quit truculent lodestar. <laughs> gotta gotta ace that verbal section. <laughs> we do what we can, Brian. Yeah, there was a whole other thing too about certain people came forward and said. Look, I think Michael Caputo, who's a former Trumpite on CNN's quote was, this is a coup, you know, essentially saying, look, Trump is the popularly elected president of the United States. Uh, and the fact that his staff would be sabotaging him, both in examples in the Woodward book and whoever, whomever wrote this Times op-ed uh, is sabotaging the administration. That's an interesting argument. It's also not something that has anything really to do with the press, because if you know, the press does not, does not uh, have any interest in, you know, making administration officials serve their uh, leader. Yeah. Uh, they're happy to, and if the administration official wants to tell them, either in uh, extraordinary quote-unquote op-ed form or otherwise that they're sabotaging the administration, that sounds like news to me. And, you know, the rest is the Trump administration's problem. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I, you know, it's a little bit difficult, I guess, to to sort of tease out what the end game of whoever wrote this is. And it should be said that it might not be one person. Steve Bannon came out today. Our, our good, our our constant subject, Steve Bannon, said that he believed it was between six and twelve people. I think that's what he said. Um, <laughs> He's who wrote it? Who wrote it as in as a group? I guess. Um, but you know, and and there were separate reports that the president's you know increasingly isolated, unsurprisingly, since he doesn't know who did this, and that, that, they, that we but can he write believes, every week, by the way. Yes, but he believes it to be a low-level staffer. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not exactly sure what the like. If if it was one person, I guess you know you could imagine this is you know that 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 someone would be emboldened by this to come out and put their name to something, you know, or to you know to be the to sit you to kind of just publicly cosign uh the, and I, you know that that sentiment um but without that it does just become this guessing game and this game of morality and treason in all capital letters you know and i don't i'm not it's it it all yeah, I, like i said the the conventional wisdom seems to be solidifying i'm not quite sure what that means for for the trump presidency yeah well i think it means the same thing by the way there was also this whole very funny um in new york times wrote a whole piece about about who is a senior administration official? Yes. That's a very nebulous, that's not really an official <laughs> term. And Tommy Veter of Pod Save America said, several times I tried to get quoted as an, a junior administration official just for fun. <laughs> it never worked. <laughs> so yeah. senior administration official could be anybody. Um, we'll ignore Trump's tweets for the meantime. Treason, all caps, question mark. He called the uh, the person gutless. Huckabee Sanders, as I said, asked people to call the Times and and register their discontent. Also, by the way, in the guessing game, some funny things, assistant managing editor at the time, Sam Dolnick, um, tweeted about the op-ed and referred to it as a senior White House staffer. This is according to a Politico piece by Michael Calderon and Jason Schwartz, which set off another guessing game because, remember, it said a senior administration official, and he seemed to be narrowing it down to White House official, and then he later later walks it back and says, I have zero knowledge about the identity. (laughs) Yeah, none of these mean none of these words mean anything. Just All, FYI, right? Also, a Times spokeswoman referred to the op-ed writer as a he in the in the Twitter account, or sorry, the Twitter account referred to the op-ed writer as he. And then the spokeswoman had to come along, clean it up, and say, "No, no, sorry, we don't, we're not revealing anything with this pronoun." Oh Just, my gosh! Yeah, I know. Here I know. We, that, I know. That, I know that the the New York Times, you know, would not have. Uh, they did their due diligence on this, or the, or the 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 two or three people who actually know who it is, presumably, are you know, uh, are correct, are properly looped in, and are not being taken for a ride, as you said before. But my initial con- total conspiracy theory guess was there have been all this, you know, all this conversation about about dueling or about competing centers of power in the Trump White House. Wouldn't this be the best move if you're Stephen Miller just to put to put this out there to totally consolidate power with Donald Trump? Yeah, I mean that would that would be amazing. Right? <laughs> no, he doesn't he doesn't trust it, anybody who's even a little bit to the you know just just a tiny degree off from him. Just you just you you get then you're you're the only you're the last person standing when Trump's looking for a shoulder to cry on. I, I think that's an amazing theory. I think and I think you should rush to print with that one. Hopefully using yeah. preferably using the word lodestar in the lead. All right, David, let's finish up with Les Moonves. of CNN. Here is Nora O'Donnell, anchor of the CBS this morning, with the duty of commenting. On yet another colleague of hers was ousted after numerous accusations of sexual harassment and assault. Last year it was Charlie Rose. This week it's Les Moonves, chairman and CEO of the CBS Corporation. Let's listen. I think the most powerful media executive in America has now resigned 
in the wake of this Me Too movement. And he's my boss, or he was my boss. And so that makes it really hard to comment on it. Um, Les has always treated me fairly and with respect. Um, still, it's been, for me, it was been another sleepless night thinking about this, the pain that women feel, um, the courage that it takes for women to come forward and talk about this. And I really didn't know what I was going to say this morning. I need, know I needed to say something. So Gail and I have, have talked and texted. And, um, and I said, you know, Gail, I'm kind of looking back to November when we dealt with accusations against our former co-host. And Gail sort of said, yeah, but, you know, I didn't think we'd still be the story in September. Right. And 10 months later, we're, we're still talking about this. So why don't we just, why don't we focus on the reporting here, which I think is fascinating. The New Yorker's Ronan Farrow published his first piece back in July, which six women, including the actress Ileana Douglas, accused Moonves of sexual harassment. Uh, then he came out with another piece on Sunday uh, with accusations from six more women. Three hours later, Brian Stelter of CNN reports that Moonves is stepping down, something that had been in the air for a couple of days around there. What did you make of the Farrow pieces, these two big slabs of <clears throat> investigative journalism? Um, they are slabs. Um, and that not, I mean, in, in, in this sort of reporting, I feel like it does agree. It does a service to the, to the subject to just be sort of as meticulous and straight as you can be. Um, uh -huh. it's almost, it's almost like an go, indictment, right? It just goes character to character. Here is this person and here's what happened. Yes. Here is this person and here's the, you know, obligatory CBS denial. Here's this person and what happened. Go ahead, sorry. It reminds me it 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 echoed a little bit of the sort of best version of online uh investigative journalism and in that but 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 so many of those online pieces don't have the same gravity or the same significance or don't even necessarily reach the same level of of conclusion or definitiveness that that Pharaoh's pieces do, but just in the fact that you have all the space in the world to break this down step by step. And there's almost there's almost an implicit um, a plea for uh, for uh, a plea for the reader to take the piece seriously. You know, I mean, that it's mm -hmm. it's not this isn't overly this isn't overwrought. You know, this isn't there's nothing purple about this. This is just like I am going to say this as as clearly as I can. And I'm not going to leave a single word out. And by the end, you will be convinced. And. The pieces, both pieces, are incredibly compelling because of that. Um, I think what struck me as most interesting was the um, power. I mean, and this again goes to the length and goes to the goes to the the uh, you know encyclopedic nature of, of of the way of the reportage was was that the second piece was again in a very bloggy sort of way, just a straight follow-up to what he had written before. Mm -hmm. And I had, and I, it, it made me think about the original, you know, his, his original piece about Harvey Weinstein and the stories of it getting shot down in NBC. And that was also relitigated recently too. NBC, you know, he said that, that, that they refused to publish it because they wanted him to get a certain source on the record. And, and, and they didn't, they, there's some quibble about what they insisted, what they asked of him, um, and and that he wanted to you know publish as quickly as possible, and he and he found a home at the New Yorker to do that. But um, but it made me think of that because there is because this the Les Moonves thing above all else shows the validity of um, sort of publishing in chapters, the sort of the sort of serial the the serial expose, and sh and that like we don't actually need every single. Um, every single abused woman to come forward everyone that he is everyone that he is just you know wrought his evil upon over the years doesn't have to come forward all at once um in some ways it's more compelling that there are that it is a a series of articles each one motivating another uh a group of people to come forward and and um yeah i mean i i think it really it, it's it's very subtle it's not like this has never been done before but it feels like um it feels like a really interesting shift in the way that these things are reported. Yeah, I think that's right. And th that stretches back to the very first New York Times article about Harvey Weinstein, where mm -hmm. the act of publication makes it, and it, it, it must be incredibly difficult to come forward right. and talk to a journalist about something like this. But the act of publication may make it somewhat easier for certain people to then talk because there's stuff on the record and you're, you're coming into sort of like an established fact pattern. No, I think that's absolutely right. 
I, when I was, you talk, some of the people that were in the second and the most recent Ronan Farrow thing were, I mean, just I think said pretty straightforwardly that who like they felt like who were they to come forward, and that's the you hear that a lot about victims of sexual assault, but um, you know this was a very clear, very very easily kind of digestible version of that, and and like and those words were there in, in print, and you you could understand why. One person complaining about Les Moonves in the wilds of Los Angeles would not feel like they had a voice. Oh no! Um, not and, not not ten years ago. Not twenty years yeah. ago. Not five years and, ago. I mean, and not even six months ago. Without without you know the feeling that there was actually an audience, or without there was someone there to listen, that there were other people making similar claims. You know, and and, and it's to sad, understand the, the gravity of the accusations, right? This isn't you know to to read a story and say, oh, this isn't just some dispute. You know, that can be settled or exactly. something right this is this is something that if true this person should be out <laughs> there should be out of the really? they should be out immediately there was this tweet from the crazy ex-girlfriend actress rachel bloom uh as soon as the second pharaoh story came out this weekend she says as an employee of cbs i would just like to say that les moonves should be fired without getting a fucking dollar the actions described in this article are those of sexual assault and shame on anyone else in the corporation who knew about his crimes i was pretty amazed and i think a lot of people were that after the first Pharaoh piece came out, that it was kind of like, hmm, we'll investigate. We'll, mm-hmm. we'll get back to you. Because that was at the end of July, if I'm if I'm remembering my dates correctly. So we've had yeah. now a month and change go by. And that was just like, I mean, <laughs> we've been under this. I mean, and it just reminds you, I think, that Moonves is... The, this is me to reaching a level of the executive suite that it, it really had not yet, you know, or certainly mm-hmm. in, the media, in media world, right? I mean, Harvey yeah. Weinstein was obviously an enormous figure, but by the time he was ousted, he was considerably, he was probably at the least of his powers, right? Les mm-hmm. Moonves is still huge, was still huge, um, which was also sort of symbolized by this ex- <laughs> this exit package that he was negotiating. yeah. It was going to be up to $120 million. Well, that was contractual. I have a couple of things before we get, before I jump in on the exit package. Sure. But, I mean, one, the story, and I encourage everyone to read these Ronan Farrow pieces if you haven't, and not just the, the you know, blog breakdowns, although those are worthwhile in their own way, but the sheer, like, feeling of impunity that he was operating with is, yes. uh, is, is different than all the stories we've heard before. Right. I mean, I'm not there's nothing forgivable about Harvey Weinstein, but this is this is the the level of of just the the he he felt himself so bulletproof that he was clearly had been driven. I mean, driven mad by power. sounds like I'm giving him too much credit. This was it it was heartbreaking and mind boggling at the same time. Um, But so, I mean, so I think that when you talk about reaching a place that it's never reached before, I mean, it's no, it's, I mean, clearly he felt like he was in some removed space. No human being could ever feel like any of that stuff was okay. Oh man. Um, absolutely right. And, and, um, you know, just to get to the compensation, I mean, there, there was, there have been reports about his contract and I think Roman, Roman Farrow himself had, had the contract in hand or somebody did, but the, but the, um, uh, and and before we get before before I forget, there was also a Vanity Fair piece that that connected uh, that that connected him to uh, a doctor that that had come out previously, but not but not named Les Moonves by name. But the, the Vanity Fair confirmed that it was that that it was Les Moonves who like showed up for a doctor's appointment early one morning at a hospital, you know, Cedar Sinai or whatever, and sexually assaulted the doctor um, or attempted to. Uh, I mean, the stories are just, uh, you know, one after the other. I think that was interesting about the first piece, and and maybe I'm over. I mean, may, maybe this isn't true, but I do. Feel, but Harvey Weinstein, for whatever station of of his career he was at when he when he was when he was you know exposed, um, he was certainly more of a public figure than Les Moonves ever was. You know, I mean, I don't think the average CBS viewer has any idea who Les Moonves is, maybe by name, yeah, but I certainly think that's not. Right. Um, he, he wasn't a he wasn't a character, a, a, you know, a national character, international character in the way that Weinstein, and certainly not the you know all of the male celebrities that have been um, that you know that that have had their moments in this movement as well. Um, and I think to to some degree, it made it more of a sort of insidery story, even though the 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 actual story was um just so much greater and i mean so much so much more unbelievable so much more you know uh just 
just mind-bogglingly evil. Um, but you know, I think that 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 it it sort of hit it it felt different when it when it landed. It, I mean, it wasn't a thud, but it was it it was more of a more of a you know a business side story. And 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 that's you know disappointing. But I think that that's there. there I think that that was real. I think the second story you know, really, really brought it home. And all of this go, comes circles back around to the compensation because I, you, you got the feeling from the Moonvis camp, not that they were out there defending themselves, that they thought they could sort of fight through it or that they, at least that they had a window to negotiate the exit and for the, and, and the amount of money that he would get on the way out the door. And, and, you know, hundreds and they did, of, uh, right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> there was a month and a half. I mean, you know, that's a long time to hang on. Right. And I, and yeah. by the way, I think they, it, it, Stelter wrote a couple of things the other day in his newsletter that made me think that they were definitely, you know, defending themselves to the press and circulating conspiracies that this was tied up in the Sherry Redstone thing he's going, you know, that CBS was yes. going through with ICOM and all that stuff. And that that it was somehow motivated by that or that she was some one of the conspiracy theories that Selter said that he himself did not believe, but said this is something people are saying is that she was somehow tied up in the reporting of these stories or encouraging the stories, whatever it is. But um, I think they were working, working, trying to work the refs, and I think they were taking their sweet time to get this compensation package. I mean, it's just, and again, it's like <laughs> there was so, as you said, there was so much damning material in that first piece um, that it, it's pretty amazing. I also love, really enjoyed reading the Bill Carter piece, Bill Carter, chronicler of mm -hmm. television, especially late night TV, uh, noted that Moonves was an actor before he became an executive. Oh, yeah. Uh, he said he gave it up because he wasn't a really good actor and he was a science as possible that we were all watching the most effective performance of Leslie Moonves's life. You know, just as you said, a, you know, acting with Im absolute impunity and disgusting impunity in private and then just carrying on as, you know, Mr. Executive, you know, the yeah. most effective guy in television and the guy who survived all these executive purges where so many of yeah. his counterparts of have been laid low for bad ratings, you know. Yeah, and and I should, I mean, I should say, I mean, to to you know, go off of what I said before, this isn't a this isn't just a matter of power corrupting. I mean, the stories that that Pharaoh recounts go back to some of his earliest days, sort of in the suites, you know. I mean, where he would he was sexually uh, assaulting his peers, you know. I mean, there were there was it, it, this wasn't this this isn't exclusive to you know young actresses and and massage therapists, although there were those too. You know, I mean, it was it, it was just pretty, pretty insane. It's pretty much everything. That's the press box for this week. Our producer is Jim Cunningham. Chris Almeida helped us with research. David, back with more hot takes about the media next week. See you then, buddy. See you later, man. David. I've really just got a general question here. Okay, go. <laughs> Would you rather visit Crazy Town or Flavor Town? Um, man. Um, do you have a preference? <laughs> Crazy Town or Flavor Town? First of all, how do you set the baseline in these? Wouldn't the way people want to know? Wow. Um, Crazy Town or Flavor Town? All caps? Question mark. Crazy this Town. This is a fucking disaster. Or Flavor Town? Do you have a? Do you have a preference? Uh, I'm a big Flavor Town proponent, so that one's easy for Gutless. me. But you know, Crazy Town is is. I think we all we've all been to Crazy Town every now and then. Not ten years ago. Not twenty years ago. Not five years ago. Okay, we're here to stay.